war is over, this war in Europe anyway, and looking back on it, you think of many things, like the first time you were seized with the awful certainty that you were going to die, and then the way you felt when you discovered that you were not, which is very much like the way one feels now. You think of London under the Blitz, when the sky itself seemed to burn, and the noise of the German bombers, and the sound of people's footsteps running... The day we hit the beaches of Normandy with the 88s coming in and the pieces of things floating in the water offshore. The way Algiers Harbor looked when we sailed in on the blue water with the city rising up white on the hills around. You remember, too, the long, cold, muddy days when nothing went right and men were killed all around and nobody got anywhere. And then now, there's that final scene in the map room of the school building Supreme Headquarters in Reims. I stood in the back and watched the German plenipotentiary, Colonel General Yodel, sign the paper that meant it was all over. There they sat around the battered old table that you wouldn't have in your kitchen. And what they were doing was ending it all. In itself, it wasn't a very impressive scene. No fanfares, no production. Everyone did their best to act in a matter-of-fact way. It wasn't the scene itself that made you hold your breath. It was the occasion. It was what it meant. It was the sense that this was the end which sent your mind racing back across all those years that seemed like months and those months that seemed like years, back to when it began and then through again all the things that had happened. We've come a long way since then. We've learned what war is. We've learned what it takes and how to fight it. We Americans had more to learn and learned it faster than anyone else. And in learning, we changed the whole character of modern war. It was a completely different kind of war when it ended than it was when it began. And it was American ideas and techniques as much as anything that changed it. But the war taught us other things as well as the soldiers' trade. Things that it would be well to remember. It taught us, first of all, that we couldn't do it alone. That we couldn't separate our efforts from the rest. It taught us, too, that an alliance, a partnership of nations, can work. Nations can work together as long as both sides want to enough. And perhaps, most of all, the war taught us, or should have taught us, that you can't buy out of unpleasant things with money or production or invention or anything. The only response to the basic problems that confront our nation can be faith and sacrifice and cooperation. We have to meet our problems honestly, and do what must be done. If the war has taught us that, it has not been in vain. This is Charles Collingwood in Paris, returning you to the Columbia Broadcasting System in New York. Gonna take a sentimental journey Gonna set my heart at ease Gonna make a sentimental journey To renew old memories Got my bag, got my reservation Spent each dime I could afford Like a child in wild anticipation Long to hear that all aboard Seven, that's the time we leave at seven I'll be waiting a 
a.m. at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Forces and simultaneously to the Soviet High Command. Hostilities will end officially at one minute after midnight tonight, Tuesday the 8th of May. We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing. Today is victory in Europe's day. Tomorrow will also be victory in Europe's day. But let us not forget for a moment the toils and efforts that lie ahead. Japan, with all her treachery and greed, remains unsubdued. The injuries she has inflicted upon Great Britain, the United States and other countries, and her detestable cruelties call for justice and retribution. We must now devote all our strength and resources to the completion of our tasks, both at home and abroad. Advance Britannia. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the King. Hey, welcome aboard, cheese lovers. From the great central valley of California, it's plausibly live. The official podcast of the Dave Bowman Show. This is the news issues and politics show that actually has a life. Outside of just news, issues and politics, we speak of it all here on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of the Dave Bowman Show. At Ross, France, a certain red schoolhouse becomes famous. Colonel General Gustav Jodl, Chief of Staff of the German Army, arrives at General Eisenhower's headquarters. These Nazis had delayed to avoid surrendering to the Russians, but General Eisenhower gives them a sharp ultimatum, sign or the war will go on. The great moment arrives as the surrender papers are prepared. Jodl, authorized representative of Admiral Dönitz, temporary head of the German government, signs the surrender document, the final capitulation of the Nazi state. So ends Nazism the scientific organization of all that is evil and bestial in man. 
The Chief of Staff for General Eisenhower, Lieutenant General Walter Bedell Smith, signs. Victory celebrations begin at General Dwight D. Eisenhower's headquarters, and Soviet officers join in. The general is presented with the historic pens. London celebrates. The royal family at Buckingham Palace joins in the historic event. London emerges at last from years of darkness, terror, and destruction. In New York's Times Square and in every city, town, and hamlet, millions cheer V.E. Day. Freedom-loving people everywhere hail the final decisive victory over Germany. Good morning from the White House in Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. This is a solemn but a glorious hour. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. For this victory, we join in offering our thanks to the providence which has guided and sustained us through the dark days of adversity. The power of our people to defend themselves against all enemies will be proved in the Pacific War as it has been proved in Europe. For the triumph of spirit and of arms which we have won and for its promise to the peoples everywhere who join us in the love of freedom, it is fitting that we as a nation give thanks to Almighty God who has strengthened us and given us the victory. Now, therefore, I, Harry S. Truman, President of the United States of America, do hereby appoint Sunday, May 13, 1945, to be a day of prayer. I call upon the people of the United States, whatever their faith, to unite in offering joyful thanks to God for the victory we have won and to pray that he will support us to the end of our present struggle and guide us into the ways of peace. I also call upon my countrymen to dedicate this day of prayer to the memory of those who have given their lives to make possible our victory. In his weekly general audience, Pope Francis made reference to a special anniversary. On May 7, 1945, Nazi Germany surrendered and World War II officially ended. The Pope had this to say about war. Che stanno lacerando alcune regioni del mondo, tutti i responsabili civili si impegnino nella ricerca del bene comune e nella promozione della cultura della pace. 
Last year, on the 100th anniversary of World War I, Pope Francis also highlighted the need to remember the lessons of history and the tragedy that comes with war. World War II lasted six years, ending the lives of an estimated 60 million people. Terrorist victory celebrations are in full swing. They aren't yet, and they may not be very riotous and hysterical, but they're going on. They're not, for instance, as fervent and automatic as the scenes which followed the liberation of Ferris. But for the first time since the liberation, there's a real sense of happiness and well-being abroad in the city. The people of Paris are physically too tired and emotionally too exhausted to throw themselves into the wild and uproarious celebration one might have expected. Only the young people right now are really taking advantage of the situation. They're marching up and down the boulevards, singing and dancing and waving flags. They're the only ones, with the soldiers here, the American soldiers, with enough energy left to do justice to the occasion. And they make a fine and happy sight as they parade through the city making their holiday. What it'll be like tonight is hard to say, because Paris is a nighttime town. She gives her best performances by night. And when this evening the city is lit up for the first time in years, Paris may go wild. But today, most people are content just to stroll in the sunshine and feel good. There is nothing glum or unhappy about Paris today. On the contrary, it never looked more beautiful and felt more glamorous. It's just that people are so tired and so glad they want to enjoy their peace in peace. While our correspondents have been telling us firsthand about the reaction to VE Day around the world, we've been getting news of reaction from other points here at our Columbia News headquarters in New York. Copenhagen residents, for example, are weary after three days of celebrating their own liberation, but just the same crowds throng the streets in the Danish capital, parading and cheering the Allies with voices that are noticeably hoarse from thousands of hurrahs and much nonstop singing. In Rome, the reaction is both gay and sober. The Allied troops, who knew that they had fought and won, are whooping it up hilariously, but Italian citizens, who know that their nation had been on the wrong side, are gravely pondering the future. That's the news that we get from Rome. Australia is taking the news of VE Day very quietly. A public holiday has been proclaimed for tomorrow in Australia, and Thanksgiving services will be held in all states. Big services will be held in most public squares. The news is still coming in very rapidly now, now that the official day of victory has been proclaimed by President Truman and by Prime Minister Churchill at 9 o'clock in the morning, New York time. In other words, just about two hours ago. And we have still not heard from Marshal Stellan, but as Prime Minister Churchill told us, the ceremony will be held later in the day in Berlin, at which the surrender document will be signed again and will be ratified. And it would be natural to expect that at that hour, the Moscow radio will come on with the news that this is VE Day in Russia as well. We just have news from London, as a matter of fact, that informed circles in London are paying particular attention to the passage in Mr. Churchill's victory message in which he said that tomorrow we shall pay a particular tribute to our Russian allies. And these circles in London are interpreting this statement to mean that the Russians will celebrate VE Day tomorrow after the surrender agreements have been signed, sealed, and delivered. That's the news from London. However, that may be, as we told you earlier, Columbia's shortwave listening station reports that the Moscow radio has been behaving oddly. As a matter of fact, 
The shortwave transmitters, the Moscow transmitters, which can be heard here in the United States, went off the air at 9 o'clock at the hour at which we were rather expecting Marshal Stalin to speak. And some 20 minutes later, they came on again without saying whether he had spoken or not, and they began to broadcast very routine communiques, uh, communiques from Yugoslavia and from Romania, and also they began to broadcast in, Tur- in the Turkish language and other broadcasts that are strictly routine. So we don't really know what Moscow is going to do. It seems likely uh, that the celebration will come after the Berlin ceremony, and whether that ceremony will actually, whether the celebration in Russia will actually come later today or will not come until tomorrow, we just can't tell. Word from Ottawa that most Canadians today regarded VE Day as the end of the war with them, with the plans for carrying on the struggle against Japan, mostly involving civilian effort. Labor Minister Mitchell announced that call-ups for military service under the National Resources Mobilization Act were suspended, but that enrollment of volunteers for the Pacific War had been made. Winston Churchill, surely the finest leader our country ever produced, drove to Parliament, the mother of parliaments, birthplace and centre of modern democracy, to make there also the formal announcement that the long war was over. In and about Whitehall, fully 50,000 people, like millions all over the country, gave themselves over to unbounded rejoicing. If anybody still believed that we didn't know how to enjoy ourselves, these victory days disproved them once and for all. Winston Churchill came onto the balcony of the Ministry of Health. Ernest Bevin was there, a burly man who had done a big job. John Anderson, Oliver Littleton, Woolton, Morrison, all the cabinet colleagues who'd helped the PM. But it was Winston the crowd wanted. This is Bill Dow speaking from Lunenburg. 
This V-Day has started out very quietly here in Lunenburg on the British sector. The convoys continue to roll through the narrow streets and the long, long lines of surrendering Germans and liberated Allied war prisoners and slave laborers stream back to the rear areas. The people of Lunenburg are going about their business as this was just another day. It may be V-Day for the Allies, but it's Surrender Day for the Germans. The people I saw this morning look like they're trying to ignore the whole thing. The shops are opening up, and already the long lines at the food stores are collecting. Ex-Nazi Hausfrauen, with their baskets and string bags, beginning a life of queuing that has plagued all of Europe since the Nazis went on the warpath. It's a beautiful day here. The weatherman could not have planned more perfect weather for a surrender celebration. But right now, there's very little celebrating. The British are a reserve people, and out of propriety for the French and American and Russian forces still fighting, they did no dancing in the streets when Montgomery signed the surrender terms that put the British Second and the Canadian First Armies out of the war last Thursday. But no doubt tonight, the barrels of French champagne that we find in every rich German's wine cellar will make their appearance. But meanwhile, the army is too busy to celebrate victory in Europe today. The millions of German soldiers must be kept moving to the concentration areas. The liberated Iraq prisoners must be evacuated, and somehow the slave laborers who look to us for help must be housed and fed. But I have an idea that tonight there will be a hot time in Lunenburg. This is Bill Downs with the British, returning you to CBS in New York. Back again at Columbia's news headquarters in New York. I might take this opportunity just 40 seconds before we pause for station identification to remind our listeners that we are continuing our Victory Day broadcasts throughout the morning. And uh, from time to time, we are able to tell you just what we are planning as the moments go on. As a matter of fact, in just exactly 50 seconds from now, at 11 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Columbia will bring you another broadcast from the European Theater of Operations, during which we'll hear from the Army commanders who led the Allies to victory in Europe. And we'll hear from such generals as Patton, Simpson, Hodges, and Patch, and other generals. And now we do pause. This is Bob Trout speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. CBS World News Headquarters in New York. Continuing Columbia's VE Day programs, we present now the second in a series of broadcasts in which we're to hear from the men who led our armies to victory in Europe. During the next 25 minutes, the commanding generals of six United States armies in Western Europe and the commander of Canadian troops will speak to those of us observing VE Day here in the United States and to the men and women of the armed forces. We take you now to Supreme Allied Headquarters in Paris. This is the European Theater of Operations. You're about to hear personal messages from the commanding generals of the Allied armies which have fought their way to final victory on the Western Front. First, General George S. Patton, who commanded the 2nd Armored Corps in Africa and the 7th Army in Sicily before assuming the leadership of the United States 3rd Army in its historic advances across France and Germany. General Patton. Now that victory in Europe has been achieved, let us review the Third Army's part in this epic struggle. From Avalanche to Brest, thence across France, Germany, and into Austria, the Third Army and its equally victorious comrades of the 19th Tactical Air Command have fought their way. The Seine, the Loire, the Moselle, the Saar, the Rhine, and the Danube 
not to mention 20 other lesser rivers have been successfully stormed. The Siegfried Line has been penetrated at will. Metz, Trier, Koblenz, and Frankfurt, and countless other cities and towns have been cleared of the enemy. More than 80,000 square miles of country have been liberated or conquered. You have demonstrated your irresistible prowess in France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Austria. You have captured more than three quarters of a million Nazi soldiers and have killed or wounded at least half a million others. But in thinking of the heritage of glory you have achieved, do not be unmindful of the price you have paid. Throughout your victorious advances, your line of march is marked with the graves of your heroic dead, while the hospitals are crowded with your wounded. Nor should we forget the efforts of those at home who have invariably provided us with the sinews of war, the means to victory. To those at home, we promise that with their unremitting assistance, we shall continue so that with the help of Almighty God and through the inspired leadership of our President and the High Command, we shall con conquer not only Germany, but also Japan, until the last danger to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness shall perish from the earth. Thank you, General Patton. From the time of the St. Lowe breakthrough to the capture of Leipzig and its link up with the Russians on the Elbe, the United States First Army has been commanded by General Courtney H. Hodges. General Hodges. With victory in Europe an accomplished fact, it is fitting that we of the first United States Army should pause to review our accomplishments and to pay tribute to those who gave their lives and to those who lie wounded that our army might move relentlessly forward. I wish they all could know we haven't forgotten that they too are part of this great first United States Army and a part of this hard-won victory. From the beaches of Normandy to the heart of Germany has been a long, difficult struggle, but we can rest secure in the knowledge of a job well done. Speaking now to the men of the First Army, America will long remember D-Day in Normandy and the bitter fighting that followed as you expanded your bridgeheads and liberated the Cherbourg Peninsula. And then the long summer days of hedgerow fighting as you moved into position for the breakthrough at Saint Lô. Sweeping through France and Belgium, you paused only to annihilate the German counterattack at Mortain, encircled large numbers of the enemy at Argentan and Elbeuf, and again at Mons. In your 450-mile dash from Saint Lô to the Secret Line, you liberated vast areas of northern France and Belgium. You were the first to crack the Secret Line and during the Ardennes campaign, you held the best troops the Germans could concentrate. You recoiled from the blow to drive the Nazis back across 
the banks of the Rhine. It was first army that seized the first bridgehead at Remagen. With skill and audacity, you breached the last nausea obstacle on the road to Berlin. Your drive toward Berlin is history now, with its total of nearly 900,000 prisoners captured since D-Day. After crossing the Rhine at Remagen, you drove relentlessly east and north, exploiting your breakthrough and linking up with the Ninth Army to close the Ruhr pocket on over 324,000 Germans. <clears throat> From Kassel, you fought on two fronts separated by over 200 miles. On the west, you mopped up the pocket, and to the east, you advanced swiftly to the Elbe. It was you who first contacted our gallant Soviet allies at Togau, a fitting climax to a long line of firsts for the first U.S. Army. On this day of victory in Europe, you should feel proud, proud of the fight you have made, proud of the tremendous work on the home front, proud of our allies, and proud of our cause. Millions of mothers and fathers in America have contributed courage, sacrifice, and superb fighting men to this victory. However, our fight is not yet over. We still have one more of the aggressor nations to defeat. I have every confidence in the final victory. Hard work, hard fighting, and a great Sacrifices are still ahead on the home and the fighting fronts. And not until victory day in the Pacific can we lay aside our weapons and resume life in a free world. Thank you, General Hodges. Lieutenant General Lewis H. Brereton has commanded the first Allied Airborne Army from the time of its formation prior to the airborne invasion of Holland. Since then, he has directed the airborne crossing of the Rhine and all the supply and evacuation operations of the Troop Carrier Command. General Brereton. For the soldiers of the 1st Allied Airborne Army, this is a long-awaited day. Germany is a ruined and hopeless country. The German soldier is stripped and stands defeated in his own ruins. Our airborne soldiers have used the fullest power and speed of modern war. They have never failed to gain their objectives. We give them our deepest thanks now and forever. Our Airborne Army is an allied fighting force. It represents millions of British, American, Polish, and French families. You may all have the greatest personal pride in your sons and brothers and fathers. They have served you well and faithfully. In Africa, Sicily, and Normandy, in southern France and Holland, in the raw days of the battle, in the Ardennes salient, and finally in the epic crossing of the Rhine. I thank and congratulate the British and American airmen who have made possible our successful operations. We owe the same gratitude to the magnificent ground troops. General Frederick Browning and General Richard Gale, as successive deputy commanders of this Allied Airborne Army and as commanders of the British First Corps Airborne, have given unsparingly. I am deeply thankful to the outstanding British officers and men of my headquarters. I cannot adequately express my admiration for the gallant leadership of General Roy Urquhart, commanding the British 1st Airborne Division, and General E.L. Bolt of the British 6th Airborne Division.
I take pride in the achievements of the 17th Airborne Division under Major General William Miley, the 82nd Airborne Division under Major General James Gavin, and the 101st Airborne Division under Major General Maxwell Taylor. These divisions, comprising the 18th Corps Airborne under Major General Matt Ridgway, have formed one of the world's finest fighting teams. This was not an easy reputation to win. The German was a dangerous and determined ground fighter. Troop carrier units of 38 and 46 groups, Royal Air Force, under the command of Air Vice Marshal Scarlett Stratfield, and the United States 9th Troop Carrier Command under Major General Paul L. Williams, made a glorious battle record for themselves. Besides their hazardous combat role, these vulnerable carrier planes became flying gas lines and ammunition carriers for our swiftly advancing armored forces. They furnished our columns with as much as a million gallons of gasoline a day on the front lines. Since the invasion, the Troop Carrier Command has evacuated more than 300,000 wounded soldiers. We have ahead of us a hard and bitter campaign against the Japanese. The same invincible fighting spirit displayed in Europe will be carried to the Pacific and will hasten a day of victory in the Pacific War. Thank you, General Burton. Lieutenant General William H. Simpson has commanded the United States Ninth Army from Brittany through Belgium across the Ruhr and the Rhine during the Battle of the Ruhr and on into Germany. General Simpson. Today, on this day of worldwide celebration and of thanksgiving to the Almighty God who has blessed us with victory over Germany, I'm happy and proud to render to the American people the accounting of their Ninth United States Army. It has been a great pleasure and a greater honor to command the Ninth Army, for it has a distinguished record thought about by the outstanding characteristics of leadership, resourcefulness, daring, enthusiasm, and courage of the American soldier. From the days of our first action in the British Brittany Peninsula of France to the final defeat of the German Wehrmacht, all our operations have been characterized by intelligent planning and preparation, brilliant and daring execution, an inevitable victory. The 9th U.S. Army first took its place alongside of the other great American and allied armies on September 5, 1944, when it was given the mission of reducing the fortress press in western France. That mission was accomplished in 14 days. The 9th U.S. Army then moved east and joined the other armies facing Germany on October 2, 1944, when we took up positions between the First and Third Armies along the Siegfried Line from Luxembourg City to St. Beth, Belgium. Here we remained on an active defensive role, probing the enemy lines for weak spots and building up supplies to carry us on deeper into Germany. The period from November 28, 1944 to February 23, 1945 found the Ninth Army resting on the banks of the swollen and potentially dangerous Ruhr River. It was during this period that the ill-fated German counter-offensive in the Ardennes Forest was met and defeated. Many troops had to be dispatched from the 9th Army Front to the Ardennes, and in a large measure they contributed to the Prussian German defeat. It was also during this period that the 9th Army came under the command of Field Marshal Montgomery's 21st Army Group. During the time that we served under this able commander, it again became evident that nothing but the closest cooperation 
and deepest admiration existed between American and British forces. The final drive to victory was begun on February 23, 1945, when the powerful 9th Army crashed out of its Ruhr River positions, won its bridgehead, and turned northeast towards the Rhine River and the industrial area of the Ruhr Valley. In just eight days, the 9th Army moved from the Ruhr to the Rhine, covering 75 miles and capturing nearly 30,000 prisoners, pausing only long enough to regroup forces and build up supplies. The 9th Army again struck at the German armies when on March 24th we crossed the Rhine River. In 19 days, we had advanced 225 miles and secured a bridgehead over the Elbe River, 65 miles short of Berlin. The end you know. Germany has been defeated, and the Ninth Army has played an important role in contributing to that defeat. To the men of the Ninth Army, I again extend my sincerest congratulations and thanks for a job that has been well done and which, in truth, was in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service. To the American people, I say that even though victory has been won in Europe, we will not rest until Japan has been defeated, and should the Ninth Army be ordered into action in the Pacific Theater, that we are ready to carry on and help bring a final and lasting peace to the world. Thank you, General Simpson. On the far northern flank of all Allied operations in France, in Belgium, in Holland, and in Germany, the 1st Canadian Army has driven to its objectives in spite of heavy opposition and difficult terrain. Here is its commander, General H.D.G. Crerar, with his VE Day message to the United States and to our Canadian allies across the border. General Crerar. Victory Day, at long last, has arrived. The business we Canadians came over here to do is virtually finished. There will yet be quite a lot of tidying up to complete, but the military might of Hitler's Germany is a horror of the past. The world, definitely, has been delivered from domination by Hitler and his pack of gangsters. And in this prolonged and bitter struggle, now crowned with victory, the Army of Canada has played a sterling part. Canadians are entitled to be very proud of their soldiers. I am certainly, called the odd words, to count myself one of them. It has been a great inspiration and a great challenge to one's own capacities to be a commander of such men. I have never met a Canadian commanding officer who has regarded his responsibilities otherwise. The very best that one has been able to give them has never been as complete as one would have wished. Yet, that compelling urge to be fully worthy of those responsibilities has shown itself during all our operations in the outstanding conduct of Canadian commanders.
senior and junior, brigadier and lieutenant colonel, sergeant and corporal. They have led their men in battle. They have never spared themselves. Also, they have paid the full price, knowing beforehand that whatever it might be, it would be worth the payment. We have reached the time when the great and gallant company, which has formed the First Canadian Army, is about to dissolve by groups and by units with anticipation and joy in their hearts, tempered by the memories of the friends they have lost. The Canadians who have survived will be returning home to Canada. I believe that the future of Canada rests in their hands. It will be a grand future should they be given the opportunity in peace to prove and practice the admirable characteristics they have demonstrated in war. Thank you, General Crerar. Lieutenant General Alexander M. Patch, a veteran of operations on Guadalcanal and in New Caledonia, assumed command of the United States 7th Army in Italy and led his troops during the invasion of southern France and on into Germany. General Patch. As we rejoice together over the accomplished fact of victory in Europe, it is fitting that we pause a moment to consider the fallen thousands who have laid down their lives to bring about this triumphant day. They gave all they had. Let us hope that the peace to come will justify their sacrifice. For the survivors, what spoken message could express the deep sense of thanksgiving and satisfaction which all of us must feel to have had some part, however small, in this titanic campaign now crowned with victory. You men of the 7th Army have pursued the Germans through Africa, Sicily, Italy, France, and finally to this inner stronghold. Some of you came over the beaches of Normandy to join your brothers in arms from the south. The sun has not always shone upon you. Indeed, there have been bitter moments, but you have bravely persevered, and you have won. The courage and the ability of the American citizen under arms needed no proof. You have been true to his most glorious tradition. Challenged by the Nazi braggart, you dropped your peaceful pursuits and beat him magnificently at his own bloody game. You have met him with the weapons of his own choosing, and you have laid him low, finally and completely. I congratulate you and commend you to the American people as worthy of their highest gratitude. Our triumph would be complete were it not for our realization at this moment of well-earned rejoicing that the world's struggle is not yet won. In the Pacific, Americans and their allies are still locked in combat with Japan. It may be a long time before the evil aggressor of Pearl Harbor has been forced back to his dragon's lair and slain for good. Until that day, real peace for Americans will not be possible. The struggle in the Far East permits no relaxation of our nation's effort, military, naval, or civilian. In this regard, 
The men of the 7th Army. And I say this with the utmost confidence. We'll know their duty. Thank you, General Pack. Lieutenant General Leonard T. Giroux commanded the 29th Division before D-Day. The 5th Corps, the 1st Army, during the invasion and the Battle of Normandy. And afterwards became the commanding general of the United States 15th Army. General Giroux. In 1942, the decision was made to forge a steel ring of Allied bayonets around the boundaries of the Nazi slave empire, and then to contract that ring until the military might of Germany was strangled. With the landing of the Allied forces in Normandy, the segments of the ring were complete. There only remained the task of tightening the band to complete the first phase of the obliteration of Nazism, the destruction of the German military machine. Today we thank God that this first phase has been accomplished and that the German Army, Navy, and Air Force are no longer a menace to the world. We are justly proud of this victory, made possible by the skill, heroism, and unselfishness of the American soldier, both men and women, and their comrades in the armies of our allies. In our day of triumph, we pause and pay tribute to those who gave their lives that liberty might live. The 15th Army, which I have the honor to command, is a new army. It assumed an operational role too late to play a major part in the destruction of the German armies. It is made up, however, of men who fought gallantly with other armies early in the war. Serving with me are veterans of Africa, Italy, the Normandy, Be Normandy beaches, and the battlefields of France, Belgium, and Luxembourg. They knew the bloody battle of Hetkin Forest the bleak winter in the Siegfried Line, and a desperate Ardennes struggle when Hitler made what we now know was Germany's last effort to win. I am proud of their accomplishments. To these veterans and to the newer soldiers who were not with us only because they were called up later, I say congratulations on a job well done, but only half finished. There are still uncompleted tasks ahead. German military power has been destroyed but Nazism remains to be stamped out. For some of us, there's a job of occupation to be done, Nazi criminals to be brought to justice, and enemy population to be retrained for future life in a civilized world. For others, there will be new battlefields in the Pacific area. We are justified in pausing briefly today in recognition of our victory, but we must pause only and not stop. Japan, the arch criminal of the East, is still oppressing and enslaving peace-loving people, still torturing our prisoners, and still attempting to destroy the freedom for which we stand. Ahead of us lies the grim necessity of completing the overthrow of this remaining enemy, an enemy fully as ruthless and treacherous as the foe we have just conquered. We hope the job will not take long. The qualities of our fighting men, the all-out support of the United Home Front, and an abiding faith in God have brought us far. We must not stop now. The day of rest will come when Nazism has been stamped out and Japan meets the same fate as Germany. Then, and only then, can we say well done to a finished task and resume our normal lives in a safe and peaceful world. Thank you, General Giroux. From the European Theater of Operations, we return you to the United States.
During the past 25 minutes in this broadcast from headquarters, we've heard from Generals Patton, Simpson, Brereton, Hodges, Patch, and Giraud, who command the American armies in Western Europe, and from General Crerar, the commander of the Canadian First Army. This broadcast has come to you from CBS World News. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Red Schoolhouse at Reims, France, as peace is signed with German General Yodel acting for the remnants of the Nazi government. Yodel, for a few hours, was the chief of staff of the German army, while the Fuhrer's successor, Admiral Dönitz, was strangely missing. This is the news that electrified the world, unconditional surrender. In the temporary headquarters of General Eisenhower, our cameras record the scene as terms are laid down with the Supreme Commander represented by General Walter B. Smith. With the Americans, all the Allies sat in to enforce the terms we set long ago. Surrender with no soft terms. It seems hard for the Nazi yodel, and it was, to admit his country's guilt and plead for mercy. But General Smith's signature is a symbol of a new world of peace. A Bill of Rights for Europe. Nothing could be more symbolic of the downfall of the Third Reich than this abject surrender. Let us not forget Germany, but meanwhile, let us fight to quick victory over Japan. With the German group sent on their way for further ratification of their signatures, the Allied delegates visit General Eisenhower's private headquarters. It's a happy day for the victors. Victory with the pens of peace. One of the first war criminals is captured, Hermann Goering. He is interviewed by Allied newspaper men. Field Marshal Kesselring, former commander of the German troops in Italy. Field Marshal von Rundstedt, former commander in the West. Hermann Frank, former Governor General of Poland, high on the list of war criminals. Field Marshal von Kleist. Admiral Hothi, former regent of Hungary. 
The tall man is Arthur Size Inquart, traitor of Austria, former Gauleiter of Holland. He will be brought to trial. In Austria, the last German armies in the Southern Redoubt had already been surrendered. Lieutenant General Brandenburger of the 19th German Army came down over the Brenner with his chiefs of staff to sign the capitulation in the small Austrian city of Innsbruck. American General E.H. Brooks has ratified another victory. But meantime, near the small town of Flensburg on the Danish border, Grand Admiral Dönitz, self-styled new Fuhrer of Germany, winds up the last business of state. The surrender of his once great U-boat fleet. One by one, they enter British ports and are taken over by men of the Royal Navy. These Germans, once the terror of Allied shipping, are now, like all their comrades in arms, nothing but prisoners of war. playing Land of Hope and Glory, and the crowd is singing, and this suddenly has become a very moving moment, for Mr. Churchill, too, is singing, and he is conducting the singing of this song. Will you listen, please? Исполнение которого началось 
24 часов 8 мая. Зная волчью палатку немецких заправил, читающих договора и соглашения пустой бумажкой, мы не имеем основания верить им на слово. Однако, сегодня с утра немецкие войска во исполнении акта капитуляции стали в массовом порядке складывать оружие и сдаваться в плен нашим войскам. Это уже не пустая бумажка. Это действительная капитуляция вооруженных сил Германии. Правда, одна группа немецких войск в районе Чехословакии его еще уклоняется от капитуляции. Но я надеюсь, что Красной Армии удастся привести ее в чувство. Теперь мы можем с полным основанием заявить, что наступил исторический день окончательного разгрома Германии, день великой победы нашего народа над германским империализмом. Blumenthal recalls the horrors of the Holocaust. Now in the winter of her life, she survived three concentration camps, including Auschwitz, and narrowly missed death by gas chamber. When the heavy doors shut behind us, we realized that the poisonous gas would be coming down any minute, and we cried for help. And there were also prayers And I was holding my niece's hand and whispering, don't be afraid. I don't think it will hurt. It won't even take long. 23 of Blumenthal's family members perished. Miriam Lichterman too survived three camps, only to return home to Warsaw in Poland and find nothing left. She says everyone has a capacity for evil, but so too a capacity for good. The anti-Semitism, the xenophobia that we have witnessed lately, it is just beyond comprehension. People don't learn, apparently. I think it is up to us by our behavior and by our attitude to other people to try and make this world a better place to live in. With each passing year, fewer survivors gather and it's growing more important for their stories to be told. Mariska Bota, SABC News, Cape Town. Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. 
Copyright MMXV. All rights reserved. For more information, log on to the DaveBowmanShow.com. Yeah, I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television. <laughs>